The scripture reading for this morning is from Matthew 6, 16 through 18. Hear the word of our Lord. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will notice, be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, good morning. Good to be here together with you and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, encouraging each other to press on to know the Lord. If you would, please pray with me now as we come to our time to sit under and to proclaim the Word of God. Our Heavenly Father, we do wish and long that more of that one holy passion would, would fill all of our frame, Lord, and, and touch every part of our lives, Lord, that no part of our life would be held in reserve or kept back from you, Lord, that it would all be brought into the freedom of holy service unto the Lord our God. Father, we know there is nothing more joyful, there is nothing more satisfying to our hearts as believers than to see your name hallowed or to see your kingdom coming and to see your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, as we turn to you in prayer, asking for your blessing to be on our time in your word, we, we come asking for those very things. Lord, would you satisfy our hearts this morning with the one thing that satisfies us most? Lift up your holy name. Let your kingdom come this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, in its power and in its glory. Let us know it. Let your will be done here in this place. And may the effect of being under your word and proclaiming your word May it be to the end that your will would be being done through our lives on earth as it is done in heaven in the days that are ahead. Lord, we're not ignorant of the challenging times we're facing and the challenging times that are yet to come. We see the clouds on the horizon. We, 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 we see the writing on the wall. We know that apart from your reviving and awakening hand. Difficult times are ahead. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill us now and prepare us now to face those times well. Please teach us how to, how to use the means of grace to seek you and to be strengthened in our walk with you so that we're ready and... Uh, ready to meet the challenges that are ahead and, and not shrinking back when those trials come. 
We don't want to be cowards, Lord. We want to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of your might. So we pray that you would help us unto that end this morning. Lord, bless us for the sake of Jesus, for the glory of your name, and for our good in him. We pray for these things. Amen. Amen. Well, we are currently in a series titled Growing in Grace, as you guys know. And um, I think that because of our tendency to lose the forest for the trees, and you guys know me very well, I don't like to just look at the trees, I like to go to the branches and the leaves and the veins and the cells on those leaves and dissect as much as we can. Um, that's just something you're going to have to put up with if, if you're going to keep me here, um, as long as the Lord has me here. But I think it's important in light of that to uh, try to begin these sermons in this series on growing in grace, reminding ourselves of why we're doing this. Why, why are we trying to consider the means of grace? Why are we seeking to understand how those means help us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? In, a, uh, in his book, A Quest for Godliness, J.I. Packer uh, wrote the following, and it serves as a good reminder for all of us. When Christians meet, Packer writes, they talk to each other about their Christian work. They talk to each other about Christian interest, their Christian acquaintances, the state of the churches, and the problems of theology. But rarely do they talk of their daily experience of God. Modern Christian books and magazines contain much about Christian doctrine, about Christian standards, problems of Christian conduct, techniques of Christian service, but little about the inner realities of fellowship with God. Our sermons contain much sound doctrine, but little relating to the converse between the soul and the Savior. We do not spend much time alone or together dwelling on the wonder of the fact that God and sinners have communion at all. No, we just take that for granted and give our minds to other matters. Thus, we make it plain that communion with God is a small thing to us. Now, if you followed what he was saying there, not only do you know the truthfulness of those statements, but you know the presence of the reality of what he's talking about in your own life. It's an important point that he's, that he's drawing out. The depth of our relationship with God can never be measured by what we are doing or by what we are not doing. Rather, the level of our communion with our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the level of our communion uh, with God is the measure of our spirituality. Our Christianity is only as deep as our knowledge and experience of God. That's what Packer's driving at. That's why he titled this book, A Quest for Godliness, because it's only in deepening 
godliness in our lives that we will achieve a deeper sense of an experience of God. So what we're seeking to do with this study on the means of grace is we are seeking to understand those pathways that God has provided where he has promised that if we seek him, we will find him. We have the promise that we will find him. The question is, where do we go to find him? Well, we know that in general we go to Christ, but what does it mean to seek God in Christ? What does it mean to seek the Lord and his face, seek his presence continually, as Psalm 105 says? Well, that is where the means of grace come alongside of us and teach us where those paths lie. If you, like me, long for a greater communion with your God, then you and I must commit ourselves to using the means that he has appointed in order to chase after him. And that's really what it's about. It's about chasing after our God. Not as though he's willingly withdrawing from us out of some malice or some you know, sense of not loving us or wanting to commune with us. That's not it at all. Rather, when we feel the Lord's distance from us, it is only because the Lord has taken a step forward and now it's our time to chase after Him and take that next step with Him. The means of grace are the ways in which we do that. Now, we've already seen in our study the role of the Word of God in this. We've seen the role of baptism and the Lord's table. We've looked at prayer as a means of grace. Now today we're picking up on what I believe to be one of the greatest, though one of the most neglected means of grace, which is the means of fasting. Now today we're just going to be introducing ourselves to the Bible's teaching on fasting. And so, on your notes sheet, you have on the top a sermon title. That's obsolete. That is no longer accurate for today. Today's title is Understanding Fasting. And then next week, we will return to consider the reward of fasting. So today, what we're doing is we're looking at, generally, this topic that Jesus brings up in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And as we seek to gain a a biblical understanding of fasting, I want to begin in Matthew 616, simply by noticing our Lord's call to fasting. Jesus says in verse 16, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they may be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now it's interesting that in Jesus' ministry and teaching, he didn't touch on fasting all that much. He didn't have a long sermon dealing specifically with fasting like what you're going to receive today and next week. He only spoke of it a couple times, but that does not mean that Jesus didn't teach us anything important related to fasting. Nor does it mean that he did not believe 
that it had an important role to play in the spiritual lives of his disciples. In fact, in this passage, we notice a couple of things about Jesus' view of fasting right off the bat. First of all, in verse 18, we see that Jesus identifies fasting as a means of grace. It is a means that is to be used with its end of receiving reward from our Heavenly Father. That is what it means to have something as a means of grace. That's what it means for fasting to function as a means of grace. It is something that is used that leads to an end of greater blessing from the Lord's hand. Now that blessing, as I've tried to define, is nothing less or nothing more than God himself. It is a greater experience, a greater knowledge, a greater love, a greater desire and passion for God. It's a greater zeal to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a greater conception of the truth and the reality of the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and a greater sense of being able to live out His calling on us. That is the blessing that we are receiving through the means of grace. That's what it means to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not gaining more money. It's not gaining status. It's not having wealth and riches and a new job or a bigger house or cars or anything like that. It is simply growing in our relationship with our God. And so here clearly Jesus identifies fasting to be one of those ways that we grow in our walk with the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a perfect illustration of what fasting was not, though. As soon as we talk about fasting being a means of grace, we need to make sure we're guarding against any understanding that would make fasting mechanical. What I mean by that is, Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, it's not like a penny slot machine where you put a penny in, you pull the lever, and the drawer opens. Right? That's not what fasting is. It's not some thing, some ritual that we go through in order to get God to do something for us. That's not what fasting is. Rather, fasting is a way of expressing our deepest longings and our greatest desires unto the Lord in order to have greater communion with Him in our trials, circumstances, situations, and in those desires. So we notice, first of all, Jesus identifies fasting as a means of grace. Secondly, look at verse 17. We notice that even though fasting is not placed on us as a command, it is clearly something that our Lord expects us to be doing. In other words, Jesus expects his followers to be practicing fasting. You notice what Jesus says there. He says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. He doesn't say, if you fast. It is assumed on Jesus' part that his disciples understand the practice of fasting and are actually giving themselves to the practice of fasting. In fact, it's the same language that is used in Matthew 6.2 to talk about the practice of giving. Or in Matthew 6.7 to talk about the practice of praying. Now what that tells us is that when we're dealing with fasting, we're talking about something that ought to be as regular in our lives as is giving and praying. Now that doesn't mean it needs to be as often as giving and praying. I hope that, that if you were to take fasting and make it equal to how often you pray, you would be starving to death. I mean, I hope that's the case. The sad reality is that for some of us, we would actually be faring pretty well if we only fasted when we prayed. At any, 
any rate, Jesus regarded fasting to be something that we ought to be doing. In describing fasting like this, it's clear that Jesus intends that fasting would be a regular part of our lives. Now, I want to throw a qualification out there. I understand that there are certain situations and circumstances that we may find ourselves in, certain health conditions that would prohibit us from fasting. There may be times where we just cannot be fasting. It's not good for us to do that. I don't want to discredit that. I don't want to uh, leave that aside and not acknowledge it. That is a reality. But let me say this. For the vast majority of us, that is not a problem. That's not our problem. Okay? It's the rare exception that would lead someone to a situation health-wise where they cannot be fasting. And I hope that we'll see more of that as we go along. I think for most of us, we simply use that as an excuse not to fast. It's like memorizing scripture. I just can't. My mind just doesn't retain it. Well, guys, that's everyone. That's everybody. If we, some of us may have to work harder at memorizing scripture to get it to stick. But we all have that problem. So with fasting, it's in some ways. All right, so that's the second thing. It's not a command, but it's clearly an expectation. Thirdly, something to notice about the context in which this discussion of fasting appears. Fasting is one part of how Jesus understands the practice of righteousness in the Christian life. Look with me at Matthew 6.1. Jesus sets up this whole section in the Sermon on the Mount as a discussion that's dealing with how citizens in his kingdom are to practice their righteousness. From there, he goes into giving, he goes into praying, and then he goes into fasting. All of those things fall under that umbrella of practicing righteousness. I think it's an unfortunate effect of our sinful nature that's led us to twist and distort the impact of the doctrine of justification, or at least the impact that the doctrine of justification ought to have in our lives. It may sound like a confusing statement. Let me explain why I say that. Those of us who believe in the glory of justification, which is the great hope of being declared righteous in the sight of God through the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is a staple within Protestant doctrine and theology. This is the bedrock of our confidence in approaching the Lord that Jesus Christ not only suffered for me, but Jesus Christ lived for me. He not only took my sin upon Himself, He not only drank the wrath of God on my behalf, but He also completely fulfilled the demands of the law that God had placed upon me for me. He has fulfilled righteousness in its totality, and that is now given to me as a gift. And whenever I lay my empty hand of faith upon the robes of Jesus Christ, in that moment the Father looks upon me as being one who is perfectly and completely righteous in His Son. There's nothing lacking, and therefore there's nothing to hinder my relationship with Him. That is a glorious doctrine. That is a glorious declaration of Scripture, and Protestants know it, right? However, the unfortunate effect of our sinful nature is to take such a glorious truth like that and to misapply it. 
The Word of God teaches us that the doctrine of justification cannot lead and will not lead to a life of passivity. Something has happened within evangelicalism that has turned the doctrine of justification into a declaration of once saved, always saved, and has completely diminished what it means to actually live the Christian life. Where the doctrine of justification has really, in effect, become a license for not seeking after righteousness. For not pursuing a holy life with the Lord. Well, I'm justified. It's just as though I never sinned. I don't have anything else to worry about. Yeah, but what you don't understand is that God's intention behind justification, declaring you just in His sight, is designed to be lived and worked out in your life for the rest of your days. It, it, it is something that is actively brought to bear upon you by the Holy Spirit. That is sanctification. And if you don't have sanctification being worked out in your life, you have not yet become a partaker of that grace and gift of justification. Right? Because that's a package deal. It's part of it. Now, I bring that up simply to say this. And this morning in the Sunday school class, golly, guys, I'm so sorry. So many rabbit trails. So many diversions. Let's hope that doesn't continue on here this morning. My point in bringing it up is simply to say this. According to Matthew 6.1, Jesus says that the Christian life is supposed to be marked by the practice of righteousness. Christians, in other words, are to be those who give themselves to a living and a true and genuine practice of that which is righteous. And fasting falls under the category of practicing righteousness. Now what that means for us in relation to fasting is that if we are not those who are fasting, what are we not practicing? We're not truly practicing righteousness. So that's a third thing to notice about Jesus' view of fasting. Now if we evaluate ourselves in light of this, and take a look at the lives of most believers of our day, we would be forced to acknowledge that as a whole, we are not living up to this expectation. As I've thought about that in relation to my own life, I've thought, why is that? That's the question that was coming to my mind. And I'm not asking that question in relation to anyone else but me right now. Why is fasting? Why am I not living up to my Lord's expectations for me in relation to fasting? It is hard. It is hard. Someone said it's hard. <laughs> that, that might be one reason, but I think that there's something deeper at work that makes the difficulty of fasting seem as though it's not worth it. Right? I don't want to be too simplistic here, but I do think that here Occam's razor applies. Those of you who are familiar with that. The simplest explanation is usually the correct explanation. Some would argue with that understanding, but I think that's really what is meant. Just like with anything else in our lives, I think the simplest explanation for why most of us do not fast is simply this. It is not something that we have experienced as being very grace-filled when we've done it in the past. 
And the reason for that is because it's not something that we really understand all that much. What are we really doing when we fast? Why is it so important? What's being accomplished through fasting? I'm not sure that many of us would have answers to those questions if someone on the street came up and asked us. And because we don't understand what fasting really is and we don't understand what fasting was intended by God to accomplish, we don't see it as something that's worth doing. In his book, uh, The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, Don Whitney includes one man's account of his experience of fasting. And see if you can find yourself in what this man wrote. I know I could. His name is Andy Andrews, I believe. He wrote this in 1977. He said, I've fasted on several occasions and nothing happened. I got hungry. That's about it. Several years ago, he, he's reflecting now on why he began trying to fast. He said, several years ago, I heard a couple of pastors discussing fasting. On their recommendation, I tried my first fast. They said it was commanded in the Bible and should be practiced by every Christian. Therefore, being a Christian, I decided I would try it. After putting it off for several days, I mustered up enough courage to start. I couldn't go to the breakfast table with my family because I didn't think I would have enough willpower to abstain from eating. So I just went to work. The coffee break at work was almost unbearable, and I told a little white lie about why I didn't want to go with the rest of the group. All I could think about was how hungry I was, and I said to myself, if I ever get through this day, I will never try this again. The afternoon was even worse, he goes on to say. I tried to concentrate on my work, but all I could hear was the growling of my stomach. My wife prepared a meal for herself and our children, and the aroma of the food was all that I could bear. I figured that if I could make it till midnight, I would have fasted all day. So I did. I made it till midnight, but immediately upon the striking of the hour of 12, I dug into food. I don't think that day of fasting helped me one bit. Well, I think he's right. I don't think that that fast helped him one bit. Now, I don't know if you can identify with what he's saying there. Have you ever tried to fast and you say, oh man, I'm so focused on being hungry, I can't even function. I can't focus on anything else. Well, I think where this man went wrong and where we often go wrong is by not understanding the right reasons for fasting. See, this man and what he wrote, what we see is that he was filled with all the wrong reasons to begin a fast. It was because someone said he ought to do it. It was because someone said this is commanded in Scripture, which I will tell you there's only one command in Scripture calling people to fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no abiding command for anyone to fast. There's an expectation, but not a command. But this man began fasting for that reason. It was done with the wrong motives. It was just to do it. What was his real purpose? What was his real goal in fasting? There was nothing identified in that, in that account. It seems to me that 
fasting in and of itself was the goal. That was his purpose, and that is why his fast failed. So I suggest that the reason it was such a miserable experience for him and very oftentimes is a uh, miserable experience for us is simply that neither he nor we often understand what fasting is really all about. He didn't have the fuel of fasting burning down in his soul. I don't know if you know anything about cars, but if you don't have any gasoline in the car, it's not going to be going anywhere. You can get enough strength to push it down one side of the mountain, but there's not going to be anything within the engine causing it to rise and climb the other side. Well, so it is with fasting. I know it's a crude illustration, but if your soul is not filled with the fuel of fasting, your fast is never going to get anywhere. If you're not consumed with the real reason and purpose for which God appointed fasting to be an important part of our lives, then it's not going to accomplish anything in your life other than misery and frustration. You're not going to want to return to fasting because it's not going to be something that satisfies your soul. It's not going to be something in which you experience grace. But Jesus promised us here in Matthew 6.18 that there is a blessing for those who seek God with fasting. So as we seek to understand how fasting is designed to be a means of grace, we want to start by asking some general questions about fasting. First of all, we're going to ask, what is fasting? Secondly, why should we be fasting? And if we have time, we will talk about the ultimate purpose behind fasting. All right, so first of all here, or second point, what is fasting? The meaning of the word uh, that Jesus uses here in Matthew 6.16 for fast is literally to go hungry, right? So it's a word that means to be without food. It could also be used to describe those who are starving. When it is purposely abstaining from food for some spiritual purpose, it is called fasting in the biblical sense. Now, I know that there's a rise in understanding the physical benefits of fasting. I also am one who partakes in those benefits. I do practice fasting regularly for the sake of my health. But I want you to understand that when the Bible calls us to fast, that kind of idea is never involved. It's not about our physical well-being or our physique, right? It's not trying to beat our bodies into a certain form. It's about trying to feed our souls with God's grace. That's what fasting is designed for. And we'll look at some examples of that in just a minute. As we consider thinking about what fasting is, it helps if we notice the different kinds of fast that are presented to us in the scriptures. The most common fast is simply abstaining from food for a period of time. So for example, you see this in 2 Samuel 12, 21 when David was mourning over his dying son, it says that he fasted. And that fast was defined as not eating food. When he broke his fast, he returned to eating food. That is the most common fast that is practiced and expressed in the scriptures. 
Now, in addition to that, there, there are absolute fasts that people will engage in, where you not only abstain from food, but you also abstain from water, or anything to drink for that matter. For example, Ezra chapter 10, verse 6, as Ezra was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles who had returned from exile to the promised land, it says that he, in his mourning, chose not to eat bread or to drink water, seeking the Lord on their behalf. You see another example of this in Moses. In Deuteronomy 9, 18, when Moses was on the mountain receiving the law of God on behalf of of the people of Israel, it says that for 40 days and 40 nights he did not eat food or drink water. It's a supernatural fast that the Lord sustained him to accomplish. Now that's normally what we think of when we think about fasting. But I want you to know that there are also in Scripture things that we would categorize as partial fasts. For example, in Dan Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, we remember Daniel and his friends in Babylon. They were taken to be servants of the imperial court of Nebuchadnezzar. And in order to be there, they had to be trained in a certain way. They had to be taught certain things, and they had to eat certain kinds of food. Daniel knew that if he gave himself to eating the king's choice meats or drinking his wine, he would be defiling himself before the Lord. And so what did Daniel decide to do? He decided not to partake in those things. That would be a partial fast. He chose to survive on vegetables and water. And the Lord blessed his fast. You see this kind of in principle in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 13 where Paul talks about out of love for a brother that if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, then I will abstain from eating meat. Right? That's a fast of love in service to someone else. But it's not a full fast, it's a partial fast. You see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 2 through 3, with the Nazarite vow. The Nazarites took a partial fast. What were they fasting from? They were fasting from the fruit of the vine or from hard liquor. They would not partake in those things. And in fact, it's interesting, whenever I typed that out, I thought of someone else who even at this moment is fasting from the fruit of the vine. Do you know who that is? Jesus. That's right. At this moment, Jesus is practicing a partial fast. You see that in Matthew 26, 29. We're at the institution of the Lord's table. After he had celebrated with his disciples, he said, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink of it anew with you in the kingdom. So even Jesus is partaking in a partial fast. So there are varying levels of fasting from foods. And then also in Scripture, we find other kinds of fast. We find fasting from different kinds of privileges. Probably the most well-known would be 1 Corinthians 7.5, where a husband and wife decide to fast from certain privileges that come with being married for the purpose of seeking the Lord in prayer. It is for a short season. It is not for a long duration so that the devil does not get any stronghold in their lives, but it is still something that they are abstaining from. And we can categorize that as a partial fast from, from a privilege. In fact, Paul lived on these kinds of fast, we learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where, for example, in verse 5, Paul purposefully chose to fast from the right to marry. And we learn in 1 Corinthians 7 his reason for doing so. For him, it was better not to marry so that he could devote himself more fully to serving the Lord. 
See, there's no curse in being single. The curse is not using your singleness in service to the Lord. Right? Singleness becomes a curse when singleness consumes you. Rather than the purpose of God in your singleness consuming you. Paul chose to fast from marriage for the sake of the kingdom. It says in verse 6 that he chose to abstain from being paid for his work in the gospel for the sake of the kingdom. At least he did that at times. And so there are different examples of different kinds of fasting. Now all of this simply testifies to us that there are different kinds of fast that we find in the Bible. And therefore, there are different kinds of fast for us to choose from as we seek to use fasting as a means of grace. You're not limited to one of these categories of fasting. You are free to exercise fasting in any of these areas, as long as it is for the Lord. Sometimes I hear people ask me, I've had people ask me, okay, I'm going to fast, but sometimes my fasting is more about not watching television, or not watching a movie, or not listening to the radio, or putting my phone away, all of which I think are very good things for the believer. We should put those things away. But they've asked me in response to that, my fasting looks like that sometimes. Is that a legitimate fast? And I say, yes. I I think it depends on your motivation. But I think that that can be a legitimate fast. Anything that is consecrated as worship unto the Lord, as removing something from your life that is distracting in order to pursue and seek God more wholeheartedly, Anything that's consecrated unto the Lord like that, I know that the God who loves you will receive that as an act of worship from your hands. So yes, I do think that that can count as fasting. But I think we need to keep in mind that when Scripture speaks of fasting, it is primarily talking about abstaining from food. Or in extreme cases, in extreme fast, abstaining from food and water. So so all of that was seeking to answer the question, what is fasting? Now, I want to turn to look at some reasons for why we should be fasting. What are some reasons to practice fasting that we find in Scripture? It's very, very helpful and it's gracious of the Lord to keep accounts of the different fasts that his people practiced. uh, throughout history. I think as we look at them, we can discern the different times and the different circumstances they sought the Lord in fasting, and we can take that and apply it to our lives and say, okay, when my life is measuring up to look something like that, I think the Lord's calling me to fast too. So for example, we find the people of God in the scriptures fasting when they were mourning. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 13, it shows men who were mourning over the death of Saul and his sons. And in their mourning, they chose to seek the Lord in fasting as an expression of their grief unto God for the king of Israel and all of his sons being put to death. That was a sign of judgment upon God's people. And they were mourning over that. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 6, we saw earlier that Ezra chose to fast even from food and water because of his deep mourning over the sins of God's people. As an expression of that grief, he chose to withhold from himself necessities like food and water in order to express that grief to the Lord. 
So they not only fasted for in times of mourning, but we also find them fasting to express their longings for God to fulfill his promises to them. This one really stood out to me this week. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, you guys may remember the context. In Daniel 9, Daniel has been reading in the prophet Jeremiah, and he has discerned that the time of exile for God's people was coming to an end. It was time for the Lord to fulfill His promises to His people to restore them from their captivity back into the promised land. And yet, as he's looking around, he realizes in Jeremiah that the time has come, but he's looking around and he's not seeing any evidence to to indicate that God is actually bringing that promise to pass. And he realizes in that moment that the people have been guilty of neglecting the Lord. They have not sought the Lord for forgiveness of their sins, the very sins that had sent them into exile to begin with. They had not renewed their repentance and their pursuit of God and His ways. They had continued on. And so here Daniel is not only mourning over the state of the people, but also recognizing that now is the time for God to fulfill His promises to His people, and it seems as though He's not doing it. And so how does Daniel then proceed to seek the Lord? Well, it says that he not only sought the Lord in prayer, confessing his own sins and the sins of the people, but he also sought the Lord with fasting. Now, he was primarily using fasting as a means of expressing his intense and deep desire for God to bring his promises to pass for his people. Can you relate to that? Are there promises of God in your life that you are longing to see Him fulfill but have not yet seemed to be fulfilled yet? What kinds of things are you craving the Lord to do? Things that He has promised that don't seem to be manifesting right now. Are you longing for the coming of His kingdom? I hope I hear amen to that one from all of you. Longing for the coming of His kingdom? Are you longing for the destruction of the ungodly in all of their ways? That's a godly desire. Are you longing for the salvation of God's people? Are you craving to see revival sparked among the people of God? You look around us and you think, are we really the people of God? We're supposed to be distinguished by God's presence among us. And yet I look at us and I look at the world and I say, what's the difference? Lord, please, you swore that we would be a holy people unto yourself. Please bring your promise to pass. Sanctify us, Lord. Make us holy for your name's sake. Let us know the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to a godly life reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, we mourn over the state of the church, but we never seek to do things that are proactively countering the bad things that we see. It's like looking around at our nation. Are you mourning the state of our nation? How much are you praying for our nation? I mean, obviously, if we can't lift up the people of this nation to the Lord in prayer, if we can't devote ourselves to fasting for the well-being of the generations that are yet to come, then evidently it doesn't mean all that much to us. 
Right? What is it? It's Hezekiah. That the word came to him saying that doom was going to come upon his descendants. And he said, the word of the Lord is good. At least it's not going to happen in my time. We're so guilty of that. But what are you longing for? You longing for the great day? (laughs) That great day when Jesus Christ will be revealed in the splendor of His glory? Are you longing to see that day? Does that longing then drive you to fasting and prayer? Seeking the Lord to bring that promise of Christ coming to pass? It's the Spirit who says, come Lord Jesus. And it's the church who ought to be with the Spirit saying, yes Lord, come. You longing for the new heaven, the new earth? Are you longing for daily provision of your needs? Are you longing for direction and purpose in your life? Are you longing for wisdom from the Lord to discern His will? All of these things are matters for which we can lift our hearts up to the Lord in fasting in light of His promises and pray that He would be bringing them to pass. And so the people of God have used fasting when they were mourning They've used fasting to express their longings for God to bring His promises to their fulfillment. We also see God's people using fasting as a plea for Him to intervene in dire situations. You see this, probably the best known example, Esther 4.16. You know the scene, Esther, I see, not Mordecai, Haman has developed a plot against the Jewish people. And there happens to be a Jewess in the court of the king who can try to help intervene and stay the slaughter from being brought about in the kingdom. So Mordecai, Esther's uncle, comes to her and says, Esther, you've got to go to the king and you've got to talk to him about what's going on. It is your duty. Your people are going to die. You've got to do something. You were raised up for such a time as this. There's one problem with that. To enter into the presence of the king uninvited bore the death penalty. Esther had not been invited to come into the presence of the king. And so for her to go seek to intervene on behalf of the people, the Jewish people, meant her own death. So how does Esther respond? How do the people of God respond to that dire situation where all the Jews are going to be slaughtered and yet the one who seems like she can intervene may also die for seeking to intervene? Esther says, you go, Mordecai, you assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way and thus... I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now look at that. How do we respond in dire situations? We need the Lord to come through. What do we do about it? You know what we would do in our modern day? We would get our picketing signs. We'd go stand outside the courthouse. We would call our legislators. We would seek to stir a ruckus, get things moving politically because we need the laws in our country to change. 
You know, it's like we don't understand that the laws of this nation are not what govern the hearts of men. What is governing the hearts of men and the real problem that we're all facing is sin. It is a sin problem. It is a non-God-loving problem. It is an unrighteousness problem. It is not going to be solved through legislation. It's going to be solved by the almighty power of God falling upon this nation and converting sinners for the glory of Christ. That's the answer. That has always been the answer, and that has been the only answer historically that the people of God have sought after. Are we not distracted? Have we not become diverted? Oh no, everything's falling down around us. Persecution is coming. What do we do? The saints of old come to us and say, fast. Seek the Lord's blessing in fasting. Show that you're serious about pursuing the Lord. Make your voice heard on high. Use fasting. We've not even begun to tap into the spiritual power that belongs to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I see some of you out there, and you're, <laughs> you're, you don't agree with everything I just said. Let me throw a qualification. We should be picketing. We should be pursuing righteous legislation in these lands. We should be taking advantage of every means we have to seek to do good to our neighbors. Politically, physically, but also spiritually. Our problem is that we rest and rely upon the former, and we never move to engage in the latter. Right. Let's do all those things, but let's not actually do those things thinking that we're doing something for the Lord when we haven't actually begun to seek Him according to the means He's established. They fasted when they needed the Lord to intervene in dire situations. They also fasted as a way of asking for the Lord to give them success in their attempts to do His will. This is Ezra 8, 21 and 23. As the exiles are returning from exile to the promised land, they've got tons of money with them, and they're not a super large group. And so they're wondering about how it's going to go, if they're going to make it safely to the promised land. They've already told the king that they don't need his aid because the Lord will establish and uphold his own cause. Right? That's such boldness there. And yet here they are, they're wondering how they're going to safely get there. And so Ezra proclaims a fast there at the river Ahava that they might humble themselves before God and seek him for a safe journey for us, for our little ones, and all our possessions. And so verse 23 says, We fasted and we sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. When they wanted power and support and authority and encouragement, success in doing the Lord's will, they fasted and they sought the Lord for that blessing. And the Lord was pleased to answer it, to give them that blessing. Now, they also fasted to seek God's intervention in healing loved ones who were sick. 2 Samuel 12, 16, David, again, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to him so that the child was very sick. Therefore, David inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. 
Now, verse 22 tells us that he was fasting as an appeal for the Lord to be gracious to him that the child would live. Now, this is a picture of true faith. This is on par with that Canaanite woman that we brought up last week, right? Chasing after Jesus and Jesus is just ignoring her. Well, here David is doing the same thing, except he's already been given a word from the prophet Nathan saying that the child is not going to live. God is going to strike this child down. And yet, what do we see David doing? He's not passively receiving that. He's entering into a time of wrestling with God. Not thinking that he is going to change God's mind, but believing that God is a gracious and compassionate God may actually move and have mercy upon my son. And it's not until the child dies that David gives up his fast. Right? Boy, do we have loved ones who are sick? Do we have loved ones who are needy? We have people sick in this church. Why aren't we fasting? Why aren't we praying for the Lord to intervene and be merciful and gracious and heal them? Are we just resolved to accept Kesarah, Sarah? What will be, will be? That's not the kind of attitude we find in the people of God in the Scriptures. We find people who were willing to wrestle and fight with God over matters, even if they were unsuccessful in what they were seeking. They were still willing to wrestle with God to see the blessed outcome. I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 9 another reason why we should be fasting, and that is as a means of seeking deliverance from spiritual oppression. Now, there's a textual variant here. Some of your translations may not contain this, but I believe that the New King James and the King James Version has it right uh, in including this part of the verse. It says that Jesus has just been on the mountain where he was transfigured. His disciples were with him, James, Peter, and John. And as they're coming down the mountain, they see a crowd and there's a commotion going on and there's an argument happening and the other disciples of Jesus were not able to cast a demon out from someone who brought their son, from from this person's son who brought him to, to Jesus to heal him. And so Jesus comes down, he heals this boy from this demon and when the disciples came into the house with Jesus, they asked him privately, why could we not cast that demon out? Jesus responded to them saying, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer and fasting. Now, if you want to know why I believe and fasting ought to be in the text, I'm more than happy to talk with you about it later. But assume for the moment that that is actually part of Scripture. What does Jesus tell us there about the role of fasting in relation to spiritual oppression? He says that we cannot find deliverance from some kinds of spiritual depression apart from using fasting as a tool. So, In Jesus' own life, we see a reason to use fasting as well. Jesus was unashamed to use fasting as a means of gaining spiritual strength in order to stand firm in the face of temptations. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 The Spirit of God led Jesus up into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. And verse 2 makes clear that throughout that whole time of trial, Jesus was devoting himself to fasting. 
He had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Beloved, are you facing trials and temptations? Are there sins that are pounding at your door and demanding entrance? Are there temptations where you find your own heart reaching out to open the door and let the temptation in? Let's be honest. Let's confess it. That's a reality for all of us. We are all attracted to temptations. How do we respond to those temptations? That's the question. When we can't overcome them, where we seem to be stumbling into them, where it's just too much for us to handle, how do we move forward then with the Lord? Well, with Jesus' example here, we have our pattern, don't we? We fast. We give ourselves to seeking the Lord and fasting until He gives us the blessing. Deliverance. You know, we're called in Scripture to resist sin to the point of shedding our blood. We're called in Scripture to seek grace from the one who shed his blood to deliver us from it. We're called in Scripture to beseech him with prayer and fasting in order for him to come to our aid and give us the grace and the help that we need. Now, and especially in light of that, but in all of these, I find myself wondering, these are things that we see in Scripture. Why do we not learn from them and actually adopt this practice as our own? Is it that we think we're strong enough to handle things on our own? Is it that we think we can just overcome it, that God's already given us all we need and we just need to utilize it? Or even worse, is it that we really don't see the temptations and the trials and the struggles as things that are really as oppressive as they are? Jesus showed us to use fasting in order to overcome sin and temptation. And I think if we're going to find victory in our lives in relation to sin, it's not going to come about without practicing fasting the way Jesus did. I'm not saying you got to go do it for 40 days, but, uh, but using it anyway. Now, I don't know if you've noticed a pattern in all of these, but there's a common thread that runs through all the various circumstances and situations where the people are fasting. The people of God used fasting as a means to do one thing, really, and it was to communicate and commune with God. You see that, for example, in Isaiah 58, verse 4. Even though this is a negative statement, it still tells us something important about God's intentions in appointing fasting as a means of grace. These people that God is speaking to were fasting not in order to make their voices heard on high. They were fasting for other selfish reasons. But right there in that statement, we find something of God's intention for why he appointed fasting. Why is fasting something that we ought to be using in our pursuit of God? Well, God tells us here, fasting is a means of making our voice heard on high. Do you ever feel like your voice is not being heard on high? Who last week devoted themselves to seeking the Lord more fervently in prayer? Don't raise your hand. But in your heart, answer the question. After last week's sermon, who actually went and developed a plan to seek the Lord more fervently in prayer? And of those of you who did, how many of you came away feeling as though it did nothing good for your soul? What times of prayer for you were, were kind of like you're just praying in the corner of the wall and God's not hearing and nothing's happening? 
well, maybe for you, as it is for me, maybe it's time for us to hear the call of God to take up fasting with our prayer and to refuse to accept the silence from heaven, but rather show our resolve and our dedication to seek the Lord until we gain the blessing, until we at least have the answer. I don't know. But within all of this, what we see in Scripture is that people of, the people of God utilized fasting in order to make their voices heard to God. It was like a megaphone that they took up to scream louder unto the heavens, more loudly than what would be accomplished simply through praying. When God's people felt desperate enough to need God to move and to intervene and to make good on his promises and to fulfill his will in their lives, that's when they turned to fasting as God's appointed means of amplifying their prayers and expressing their desires. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is driving at here in Matthew 6, verse 18. That the whole purpose behind fasting is in order to be noticed by God. And we're going to look at that more next week. What kind of fasting is God delighted to take note of? How can we discipline ourselves to fast in a way that gets God's attention? Those are the important questions we're asking. Jesus tells us the answers to those questions in Matthew 6, 16 through 18, and we will come back to look at it next week. So would you pray with me? Father, we uh, can so often be overwhelmed, Lord, by what we see in your word and what we don't see in our lives. We can feel discouraged, we can feel disheartened, we can feel severely rebuked, Lord. And I, I don't want that for myself, I don't want that for your people, but I do want us to see something in your word that challenges us, Lord, and draws us out to run after you. And so I pray that your word would have its effect in each one of our lives. Lord, let us see what fasting is. Let us know why you would have us practice fasting. And I pray as opportunities arise this week, we would find ourselves even longing to fast or yearning to seek you in fasting. And uh, more than anything, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in our lives. And if fasting is one way in which you will be glorified, then please help us be those who fast in full measure for the glory of your name. Father, bless us. Help us sing our closing hymn and praise to you as our strong refuge and deliverer. Lord, and may our hope in you be strengthened. We ask this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. 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 Hear the benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. He will surely do it. And I pray that as you seek him, you come to experience and know in greater ways God's faithfulness to his promise. He will surely do it. May you go in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may you strive to do his will. Amen.